Well, if you haven't done so already, open to that passage that Sam just read with the boys. Uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Uh, that's our text this morning, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, the, the first part of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And, and remember what we've seen up to this point in the book of Acts. After Jesus' resurrection, he presented himself alive to his disciples over the course of 40 days. We're, we're told that he presented himself alive by, by many proofs. And, and during that period, when he was meeting with his disciples, he was also teaching them. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he was preparing them to take that message to the ends of the earth. Because he, he told them that, that they were going to be his witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem, Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. But he didn't send them off right away. Rather, when he ascended to heaven, he told them to wait. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until they should receive the gift of the Father, until they should be clothed with power for the ministry that they had been given. And it was that promise that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The, the disciples for, for some ten days after Jesus' ascension had been gathering together in, in a house in Jerusalem. And they had been committing themselves to, to prayer and asking God to do what he had said he was going to do. And then on the day of Pentecost we're told suddenly it happened. Suddenly, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Suddenly, flames of fire came and, and descended upon the disciples. And suddenly, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And as they were baptized, they, they began to speak in tongues. And it would seem that, that as this phenomenon began, as they began to proclaim the wonders of, of God's work, they, they made their way out of the house and onto the street. And I say that because... We're told that a crowd gathered, a crowd heard the noise, a crowd heard them prophesying and came to see what was going on. That's really exactly what we would expect to happen if 120 people started proclaiming a message on the, on the streets. If, if we had 120 people loudly proclaiming a message on the streets of any city in the United States, a crowd would gather to see uh, what was going on. And when you add to that... Uh, the, the supernatural phenomenon that they were not only uh, proclaiming a loud message, but that they were doing it in the, the native tongues of the people who had gathered in uh, Jerusalem for the feast. Languages that they would not otherwise be expected to know. When you, when you consider all that's going on, it is not surprising that a crowd gathers. And it is to this crowd that Peter preaches his first sermon. But the first thing that you notice about this sermon is that it begins rather oddly. Notice what he says first. He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk. That is a strange way to begin a sermon, having to explain that the congregation is not drunk, having to explain that that what you see here going on is not the, the result of overindulgence in, in, in too much wine. He, he says it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's only the third hour of the day. They haven't had time to get drunk yet. This is, that's not what is going on here. But we have to wonder why did they feel compelled? Why did Peter feel compelled to offer this disclaimer? He begins this way because he knows that the crowd 
is divided. As we have already seen, there were, there were some who were, who were curious. There were some who were amazed. There were some who were wondering, what does this mean? And they wanted to know more. But others in the crowd mocked. Others in the crowd were, were making fun of them. Others in the crowd were suggesting that maybe they had drunk too much new wine. And I think that division in the crowd is in itself noteworthy. It's something that we need to pay attention to because it, it teaches us an important lesson. It's actually a division that we've seen before. We, we saw this sort of division throughout the Gospels. For example, after one of Jesus' miracles, when he, uh, he healed a man with a, with a withered hand, there were some in the crowd who were amazed. They, there were some who, who marveled and wanted to know more about this Jesus who, who healed the lame. But we're told also that the Pharisees went out and began plotting with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The, the Pharisees, the, the, the most patriotic of the Jews who were committed to keeping the law in its, in its every detail, began plotting with these Roman uh, sympathizers, these, these ones who were devoted to, to Herod and to the Roman system that had been set up. These are not your normal allies, and yet, in response to Jesus' miracle, in response to the healing of a lame man, they get together and begin plotting how they might kill Jesus. And we see the same thing after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Can you, can you imagine a more awesome miracle? Can you, can you imagine a greater wonder? Jesus calls Lazarus three days dead out of the grave. And yet, when the crowds saw this, there were some, particularly the religious authorities, who immediately resolved that it was time for this man to die. They had seen enough. Not that they were ready to bow to him, not that they were ready to acknowledge him as, as the Lord and Savior, but they had seen enough and they were ready to get rid of him. They were ready for him to die. The sooner, the better. What we see in that, what we, what we see in these divergent responses to, to Jesus' miracles, what we see to the, to, to the divergent response of the, of the crowd to the outpouring of the Spirit and the, the miraculous wonders that were on display on the day of Pentecost, what we see is that faith does not necessarily come from seeing miracles. Miracles do not automatically produce faith in those who witness them. We think that if people could just see, if, if we could just see some miraculous display of God's power like, like was a scene on the day of Pentecost, then surely it would be so much easier to believe. Then we would be convinced. Every reasonable person would, would believe such evidence. It was once said that, that Bertrand Russell was asked why he didn't believe in, in uh, what he would do if he, uh, when he was, uh, if he died and found out that these things that he had so publicly disclaimed actually turned out to be true. And he said with no small degree of, of arrogance, well, I'll just have to tell God that he didn't give me enough evidence. Woody Allen said something similar. He said, if God really wanted people to believe, why doesn't he just tear the sky open over New York City and say, hey, here I am. The idea is that, that these people are suggesting that if God, would, if God really wants people to believe in him, he needs to, he needs to do something very public and very miraculous. And then, of course, every reasonable person would believe. And we can sometimes fall into the trap of, 
of, of thinking along those same lines. But it isn't so. Not everyone has eyes to see or, or ears to hear even the most obvious manifestations of the Spirit's power. In fact, Jesus says explicitly in one of his parables that if a man cannot hear the voice of God in the words of Scripture, then he will not hear the voice of God even if the messenger rises from the dead. Miracles do not necessarily produce faith. And that is a sobering thought. Sometimes when I am personally struggling with, with doubt and, and wrestling against unbelief, I, I desperately want God to do something spectacular. I, I want Him to, to do something like He did on the day of Pentecost. I want to I see it because I think that such a display of power would blow away my doubts and leave me only with this, this pure, solid faith. If I, if I could just see something like that, then I would believe. I have similar thoughts when I'm working with people who are struggling with that. I, I often get to, to minister to people as they are asking questions and as they are working through their, their own doubts. And, and I sometimes find myself wondering that, or, or wishing that I could just show them something amazing, that I could, that I could show them some display of, of power. Because then, I think, then they would be able to believe. Then they would be able to, to put aside their doubts. But the truth is that miracles and supernatural displays do not always or automatically produce faith. Unbelievers are unbelievably skilled at suppressing the truth. Unbelievers are, are good at not seeing the obvious. They are good at doubting the indubitable. And it doesn't, it doesn't always help for them to see displays of God's power. That doesn't mean the displays are, are useless. Not at all. God has a purpose for them. He wouldn't use them if he, if he didn't. But we have to understand that, that the displays of power are signs and wonders. They, they are meant to stir wonder and they are meant to point people in a certain direction. They, they are meant to, to show people, uh, prepare people to, to listen to this man who has been sent to speak the very words of God. That's exactly what, what Peter's going to say in the next part of the sermon. He's going to say, Jesus was attested to you by his signs and wonders. You should have known where he was coming from because of the signs and wonders that he did in your midst. We actually read the same thing about the apostles in the, the book of Hebrews, that they were attested to the people by the signs and wonders that they did. God uses signs to point people in the right direction, to, to, to prepare them to, to listen. But it is not the signs and wonders that produce faith. It is the word of the gospel spoken by those, publicly validated by the signs. It's, it's actually exactly what we're going to see here in this sermon. The signs and the wonders gather a crowd. The signs and the wonders prepare them to listen. But it is Peter's words spoken. It is the gospel proclaimed. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that brings people to life. God uses the word of his power to speak life and repentance into the hearts of those who formerly did not believe. It is God's word that creates light where there was formerly only darkness. It is God's word that creates faith where there was formerly only unbelief. 
And so what we need, what I need, what, what you need when we are wrestling with doubt, what we, what we need to give people when we're ministering to people who are wrestling with doubt, is not a miraculous sign, but it is the Word of God. And that Word can, can come to us in any number of ways. It's, we have it written. We, we, we have it on the printed page. We can, we can read it ourselves. We have ready access to it. But it also can come to us when... For those of us who are more auditory, we can, we can listen to it. We can, we can listen to it read to us at any time that we want. We can remember the, the verses that we have memorized, mostly the verses we memorized when we were kids, but those, those verses come back to us. The Word of God fills our mind as, as we go throughout uh, the day. Sometimes it's spoken to us by a friend or, or in, in a word of encouragement or a word of, of exhortation. But most of all, God has given to His church Men who are equipped to, to preach the word, to proclaim it, to expound it, to unfold it, and unpack it for the congregation. And we have access to come and to sit under the word preached. And not only in our own congregation, but we can listen to the sermons of others around the world through uh, the, the, the uh, modern technology of, of podcasts. As an aside, I would tell you, make sure you know who you're listening to. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of junk out there, so make sure you, you're listening to a pastor who is, who is approved, a pastor who is given to the church and ordained by the church and, and not just off on his own. But you have the opportunity to listen to the Word. And what you need to ask God for in those moments of struggle, in those moments of doubt, is for ears to hear. You need to ask Him to, to open your heart to receive what he is saying, to, to not harden your heart, to not dull your ears, but to receive what he is speaking to you through his word, however it comes to you. That's what we need because that's how God works. It is God's word that brings forth the harvest. So whether we are struggling with doubt or whether we are working with someone who is struggling with doubt, what we need to ask God for is, is not a miraculous display. What we need to ask for the miracle of open ears. Ears to hear the voice of God speaking. Because that is how God brings life. And it is understanding that. It is, it is understanding the power of words that prepares us to, to understand the uh, the, the truth that Peter sets before this crowd when he quotes the prophet Joel. Look at that. That's the next part of, of Peter's sermon. He says, This that you are seeing, these men are not drunk, but rather this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter is, is telling the crowd that, that what is going on, what they are witnessing, is the fulfillment of what God had promised would happen long ago. Now that in and of itself is, is significant. We, we serve a God who keeps His promises. And, and the faithfulness of God to keep His promises is, is an amazing truth. Because when you think about it, Joel, we don't know exactly when he was speaking. We don't know exactly when he, uh, when he wrote. Some say it was in the 9th century. Some say it was in the 4th century. But either way, it was hundreds of years before Jesus. And so people have been waiting a long time for the fulfillment of the words that He had spoken and we can sometimes, in that long gap, we can begin to wonder, is God going to keep his promises? Because we, some 2,000 years later, are still waiting for Jesus to return. 
We're, we're still waiting for the, for the full completion of all that he has promised to do, and we can begin to, to wonder. And so it's, it's, it is a grand thing to have this reminder that, yes, God keeps his promises. He, he works in his own time. His time is not as ours. A thousand, days is, uh, as a, a thousand years is as a day. A day is as a thousand years. He doesn't work on our schedule, but he always keeps his promises. But what I want us to see is not just that he is a promise-keeping God, but I want us to see the nature of the promise itself. And to do that, we need to understand what it is that Joel is saying. So turn with me there to the book of Joel. Now, it's probably been a while since you had to turn to the book of Joel. So you've got the prophets, the major prophets, uh, you know, ending with Daniel. And then you've got the minor prophets starting Hosea, Joel. He's the second one. So you've got you know, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you've got the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel. So that's where you're going to find Joel in uh, your Bible. And I want us to turn there because I want us to, to understand the context of this passage that Peter is quoting. And so, like I said, we don't know exactly when Joel is speaking, and we don't know exactly what he's talking about either. You'll, you'll see there in, in chapter 1 that he's talking about an invasion of locusts. If you've got an ESV, that's the heading at the top of the chapter. This is an, an invasion of locusts, and, and these locusts have, have devastated the land, so much so that the people not only have nothing to offer God in the temple, but they have nothing to eat themselves, they have nothing to set upon their own Table. The question is, is he talking about a literal swarm of locusts, or is he talking about an army that came through like a swarm of locusts? Because later in the book, it seems that, uh, that he's talking about an army and not locusts. And maybe the locusts foreshadowed the army, maybe uh, the army is described as locusts, maybe the locusts are described as army. We're not actually 100% sure how to read the book of Joel. But what we don't know shouldn't uh, distract us from what we do know. Because we do know a couple of things for certain. We know that when Joel addresses the people of Israel, they were suffering greatly. They know that their land had been devastated. But more than this, we know that their suffering was an expression of God's judgment. Now in some sense, all suffering is the result of sin. We, we know that sin and death entered the world because of Adam's first rebellion. We know that, that this world was subjected to futility and curse because of sin. And so in some sense, all suffering is the result of sin. But we need to understand that suffering is not always directly related to your particular sin, to the sufferer's particular sin. We see this, for example, in the life of Job. Job suffered greatly, but it was not because of any particular sin he had committed. He was not being disciplined. He was not being uh, judged. Uh, in his suffering. God had other purposes for his suffering. So it is a mistake to assume that any time you are suffering that God is, is trying to get you or that God is, is disciplining you for, for something. That is not always the case. But here, because the prophet Joel tells us, we know that it is. They are suffering because of their sin. They are suffering because of their rebellion. And so this is God's judgment. But not only is it God's judgment in the present, it is a foreshadow of the judgment that is to come. Again, in the ESV, you'll see that, that chapter 2, the heading of chapter 2 is the day of the Lord. 
And in the prophet Joel is telling them, he says, listen, what you are experiencing now, this, this swarm of locusts which has devastated your land, it is but a foretaste of the judgment that you will face on the coming day of the Lord if you do not repent. But you see, that last phrase is vital. Because really what Joel is doing is he is calling them to repentance. He's not saying this is a foregone conclusion. He's not saying this is, this is irreversible. He is saying if you do not repent, you will not only face a swarm of locusts in the present, but in the future you will face the full wrath of God. And therefore the book of Joel, the heart of the book of Joel, is this call to repentance. We see it beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2. He writes, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. The coming judgment that's been foreshadowed in the swarm of locusts, it can be avoided if you will repent. If you will return to the Lord, if you will rend your heart and not your garments. Don't just go through the externals of repentance. Don't just go through the motions. But truly repent. Humble yourself before the Lord. Because if you will humble yourself before the Lord, He will forgive. He will relent from the judgment that you deserve. He is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast mercy. He is a God who is gracious and merciful. And so Joel is calling the people of Israel to repentance that they might escape the coming wrath of God. But he says more than just that. Israel's hope is not just to escape by the skin of their teeth. But Joel goes on to say, that not only will God relent of the disaster, not only will God forgive, but that He will restore their fortunes. He will again pour out His blessing. Notice again verse 23. He says, Be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication, and He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. God is not only going to relent of the disaster. He is going to undo it. He is going to reverse it. He is going to pour out an abundance on his people new blessings so much so that he will restore to them the years the locust has eaten. Let the wonder of that just sink in. This is what God will do for his people. I think of Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, listen, you've left all to follow me and you will not fail to receive back in this life many times more. God takes care of His children. He, he, he works good for them. It's not always according to our own imaginations. It's not always according to the script that we would, we would write. But God works good for His children. But even this is not God's full blessing. For this is the point. 
at which we get the text that Peter is quoting. It, it begins in chapter 2, verse 28. Look again what Joel writes. He says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on my male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. Joel says it shall come to pass afterwards. When, when Peter quotes this passage, he actually says in the last days because, because Peter understands that, that when God does this, it's the, it's, it's the last days. It is those, those days between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. See, we think of the last days today as days still future, as days that will be close to the end. But when the New Testament uses that phrase, it always uses that phrase to describe the entire period between Jesus' first coming and second coming. These are the last days. We live in the last days. They have already begun because the climax of history has come. The redemption has been accomplished and we are now simply waiting for God to bring to completion the good work which he has done in Jesus Christ. And Peter says in the last days God is going to do something even greater than restoring the fortunes of Israel. He's going to do something even greater than, than restoring the years that the, the locust has eaten. And what is this greater thing? What is the greater gift that he's going to give to his people? It is prophecy. He's going to pour out his spirit on them that all might prophesy. Now, be honest with yourself for just a moment. Does that really sound like a greater thing to you? Does, does receiving the gift of prophecy really sound better? than receiving the gift of prosperity? The, the gift of, of, of full vineyards and, and overflowing harvests? If you had to choose between the two, which would you take? You see, we don't immediately understand that receiving the gift of prophecy is better than receiving the gift of prosperity. And so to understand why Joel would speak this way, to understand why prophecy is better than prosperity, we, we have to first understand the, the weakness of possessions. All right? we, we have to understand that possessions can't possibly be God's greatest gift. And the reason that possessions can't be God's greatest gift uh, are, are at least twofold. First, possessions can't possibly be God's greatest gift. Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. To, to put that in modern parlance, we say light of money doesn't buy happiness. You can have all the possessions in the world and still be miserable, still feel empty, still feel discontent. Possessions do not satisfy. They do not fill up. They leave you cold and, and empty. They are good things, and if you give God thanks for them, you can enjoy them. But if you look for your life in them, they will always fail you. They will always disappoint you. Even the world knows this. Even the world knows money doesn't buy happiness. Life is found not in possessions, but in relationship with God. Jesus said this is eternal life, to know the Father and to be known by Him. And so first, possessions cannot be God's greatest gift because life does not consist in possessions, but, but also, life is not secured by possessions. 
at some point, you're going to be called to account. And on that day, all your possessions will be of no value to you. Again, the world says it this way. You know, there are no trailers behind hearses. You don't take it with you. Your, your possessions will do you no good on the day of judgment. A person can gain the whole world and yet lose his soul. And so we see the weakness of possessions and we understand that, that possessions cannot possibly be God's greatest gift. But it's not immediately obvious that prophecy is the best alternative. All right, all right. We, we get that possessions aren't everything. We get that, that prosperity is not God's greatest gift, but, but prophecy? To understand why prophecy is, is the greater thing that God does for his people we have to understand what Joel means by prophecy. At its most basic, prophecy is speaking the word of God in the power of the Spirit. All right? That's prophecy. Prophecy is speaking the word of God in the power of the Spirit. And to understand that definition, you have to remember that the word of God is the word of life. God, by his word, brings into being things that did not exist. God, by his word, brings light where there was formerly only darkness. God, by his word, brings faith where formerly there was only unbelief. God's word is the word of life. And so a prophet is a minister of life. A prophet is a minister of the words of Bring life to the dead. We have to understand that that language of prophecy can be used both narrowly and broadly. In the New Testament, prophecy is a specific gift. There are some people who, who literally speak the very words of God. But there is another sense in which all of the spiritual gifts come under the umbrella of prophecy. Because remember, all spiritual gifts serve the ministry of the Word. And so your specific gift might not be speaking literal words. You might have another gift. Paul lists many gifts in the New Testament. But all of the gifts, all of the, the power of the Spirit, serves the ministry of the Word, advances the ministry of the Word. And this is why Paul can say that every member of the church has been equipped for ministry. Not every member has received the gift of prophecy, the specific narrow gift of prophecy. But every member participates in the ministry of prophecy because every member is gifted to advance the ministry of the word, that life-giving ministry. And so if you are a believer in Christ, you have been clothed with power for the ministry of prophecy, for the ministry of, of bringing God's word, God's life-giving word, to those who desperately need it. That might be in your own household. It might be your own children who you are discipling. It might, it might be the members of this congregation as we, as we speak the truth and love to one another and encourage one another and build one another up. It might be members in this community as we, as we take the word out to, to those who so desperately need to hear, it might be those at the ends of the earth. Our mission to the world uh, committee uh, in, in the PCA prays that 1% of every congregation 
would be called to foreign missions. Not everyone's called to go to the ends of the earth, but some are. But whether you are called to go to the ends of the earth or whether you are ministering in your own home or somewhere in between, you have been clothed with power in Jesus Christ to be a minister of the word in some sense, to to build up the body towards maturity in Christ. And that is God's greatest gift. He has not only called you to this profound work of preparing people for that coming day. Again, notice uh, Sam talked about it. There's some scary words here. Words about earth and blood and moon and smoke and, and you're wondering what's going on. And this is Old Testament language that gets repeated in the New for the coming day of judgment, for the coming day of the Lord. And it's always there. There is a day coming when God will call all people to account. And that day will be a day of darkness and a day of judgment and a day of death for those who stand alone. But for those who call upon the name of the Lord, it will be a day of life and salvation. And so the prophet Joel is saying, God has made you prophets to announce even to the ends of the earth the only hope of salvation, the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. You have been equipped to be a minister of God's word to people who desperately need to hear it that they might be ready for that day. And to be given such work, and to be given the power to do such work effectively, that is the greater thing that God has done. That is the greater gift that God has given to his church and given to his people. And because God has given us such a gift, because he has called and equipped us to be ministers of his life-giving word to those who need to hear it, That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you not only, Father, that you have called us out of darkness, but that you have called us to new life. And that you have empowered and equipped us to be ministers of life to those who who desperately need the good news. Father God, may you give us grace to use the gifts that you have entrusted to us and to use them well to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.